Hey everyone, this is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast. Uh, if you've just now uh, come across this podcast, it is uh, primarily a 12-step recovery-based pro- uh, podcast. But I do investigate, explore uh, other ways in which people get sober, and then other ways that uh, there's a there's a to me key term in this uh, 12-step world that says continue and uh, some of the stuff would probably fall under continue to enlarge your spiritual life or uh, things like that continue to grow so that's what you've bumped into here Uh, I want to talk about 12-step spiritual recovery real quick that is a book by James Christopher Cohn it is the 12 steps for anyone and everyone you do not have to be a you know, in the rooms we talk about qualifying as an alcoholic or qualifying as an addict, you do not have to qualify as anything here. Uh, my sponsor and I are convinced that uh, these 12 steps have been sent down here for everyone. Uh, it was just the alcoholics who were desperate enough to do the work in the first place. And uh, so that's a uh, 12 step spiritual recovery by James Christopher Cohn. Uh, we have Zoom meetings. In particular, there's a Thursday night Zoom meeting. And if you would want to sit in on that, um, <clears throat> I can guarantee you that if you work these steps and practice these principles in your daily life, your life is going to get better. And uh, that's uh, that's what we're trying to do there. It, it is really amazing. We have plenty of uh so-called case studies of people who are not alcoholics, not substance abusers, not gamblers, not overeaters. They're just what a lot of times people would call normies, normal people who are uh, struggling in life and come in and uh, utilize these tools and, uh, and improve the quality of their lives. Thank you, Darren Frank, for your uh, <clears throat> music that I wrap around here. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're raffling off some art for Darren at the moment. And uh, so if you're interested in getting in on that, you can just contact me, uh, Dan at spiritualunderground.org, and uh, we'll get you hooked up with that. Um, So the wonderful uh, world, uh, the world we are living in today, this tech that uh, is uh, uh, so dangerous at some level and so good at another. Uh, it really is a dichotomy as a lot of things are in life. And, uh, you know, the, the addiction to our screens and, and, uh, the ability to get, you know, minute by minute news and all that. But the cool, the, the, the flip side of that is, is I get to meet people from all over the country. And, uh, if it wasn't for this technology, that probably wouldn't happen. And then for sure, maybe I would maybe be able to meet them. I could call them, but here we have a medium where we can actually get together and uh, record these conversations and, and get different points of view on, uh, on whatever we're looking for. And I love doing it. I, I, I get, <clears throat> I get tapped on the shoulder by my higher power sometimes and says, uh, invite that guy on the show, invite that girl on the show. Uh, sometimes I get on Facebook and I'll go to one of the recovery type pages and I'll just put an open invitation. Anybody wanting to share their story on a podcast, uh, let me know. Would love to hear you. And uh, that's what's happened today. I was tooling around on it the other day, speaking of screen time and uh and I saw this guy talking about uh, uh, doing, uh, and I believe I'm, I believe I, I don't want to misquote it, but I believe the words were used was a deeper dive into the fear inventory, and that caught me real quick uh, uh, when we talk about the the book that twelve step spiritual recovery. Uh, it has a me- methodology of the twelve steps, which I would consider to be a deeper dive. Uh, you know, 
you can you can do the 12 steps shallow or you can do them deep and they both work uh it's just a you know i don't know i don't even necessarily want to commentate on that but it, but uh but i like the deeper dive aspect of it so i shot him a note real quick and invited him on the show and so i'm gonna jump in here real quick and apologize for the technical difficulties um we were losing signal here and there and some very inopportune times uh tried to go back and and patch it back together the best i could uh you know, I spend a couple hours with a guy on the phone or on the computer here and uh, have him, you know, we're sharing this 12-step recovery message with one another. And I can't just throw it in the garbage can. I just can't. Uh, so uh, if you will please forgive me for the technical difficulties around this thing. And uh, I, I still believe after previewing it that the message is, uh, is there fully. And uh, I will just give you Justin. Welcome, Justin. How are you doing today, man? Good. How are you doing? Fantastic. Uh, I like Sunday morning recordings, man. If I could have my time, if I could pick uh, a very favorite time to do a podcast, it's on Sunday mornings. Yes. Uh, there's some kind of, you know, I don't know if that comes from my spirituality my, of my childhood or 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 what it is, but that, I like that. It's raining here, so man, I don't know. Uh, a rainy Sunday morning has something that uh, that, that uh, it has something in it that I need. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What's your sobriety date? Uh, my sobriety date is January twentieth, two thousand fifteen. January twentieth. Well, we are right on top of each other then, because mine is January first, two thousand fifteen. Okay. Okay. New Year's Day. Yeah. 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 And that was an accident. Uh, <laughs> I did not go to bed that night saying tomorrow I'm not going to drink again. Uh, but, um, so, uh, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Let's talk a little bit about how you, uh, what your, you know, what your upbringing was like. Okay, sure. Um, so I was born in, in New Jersey, Long Branch, New Jersey. Um, my dad's side of the family is Italian and my mom's side of the family is Irish. So I had a really big family growing up. Um, I was probably, you know, one of maybe 50 cousins. Oh, wow. Um, I was like middle age. So I always had love and belonging. You know, I, f I fit in when I was a younger kid. And um, when I was seven years old, we moved to Port St. Lucie, Florida. And I kind of touch on this period in, in my book. Um, this is where I started getting, um, I started experiencing some childhood trauma. From the move itself or from the peers where you moved to? So the peers where I moved to, um, so what happened was, is, you know, I, I mentioned that, that I was born in Jersey and, and raised there and I had the love and belonging because it was a total culture shock moving from uh, Jersey to Florida. And the area mm -hmm. that I moved to in South Florida was, uh, you know, unbeknownst to my family was a very racist area mm. and segregation was still going on in the schools here. Um, this was back in 1989. Um, so where my family moved, uh, one third of my family from Jersey moved here with us and wow. they moved, they moved on the opposite side of town as us. And my parents got a house, um, you know, it was like 10 minutes away, but as a kid, you know, it feels like 10 miles. Yep. Um, so I was, um, where I was zoned for my school, I was one of three white kids that was transferred to the next city over. Oh, wow. And you know, they told me that, um, you know, the words that they used 
was that, you know, they shipped three white kids to an all black school and they shipped three black kids to an all white school. Um, So here it is, you know, seven years old, new beginning, kind of nervous, you know, a lot of anxiety with that. And I get off the bus. And as soon as I get off the bus, I'm called racial slurs. Yep. Yep. Right off the bat. Yeah. Right off the bat. Trauma. And for 30 days, I was violently attacked by, you know, multiple kids at once. It was never Mm. one-on-one. You know, anytime I went to the bathroom, I was jumped. Um, You know, I was jumped in the classroom. I was jumped walking, you know, to the bus. I was picked on on the bus. Um, And at seven years old, you know, I didn't have answers. So I went to my parents. And my dad's method was to fight. And one day those kids will leave you alone. And at seven years old, that's not the answer I wanted to hear. You know, I wanted my dad to, you know, protect me. And so that put more fear into me is when he told me that, you know. Um, And then I went to my mother and my mother jumped on the the phone with the school board. And the school board basically said there's nothing they could do that. That's where we're zoned. And that's the school I have to go to. So more fear came into my life because I seen my mom was helpless of getting me transferred. You know, and I talk about it in the book. I feel like more trauma came for me um, from my parents being unable to protect me yeah. than the bullying itself. Because, yeah. you know, I'm going home for answers and these are supposed to be my protectors and they're helpless and they're powerless over doing anything for me. And I just felt lost, yeah. you know, and I, I started struggling with self-esteem, self-worth. I started thinking something was wrong with me. Yeah, I so, completely. And that's where... Shoot, it's got some parallels to, to I, I can relate to some of that, but that uh, uh, I, I really hear you about like the, the, the kids at school were, were scary, but the fact that when I went home, I could, I had no support, that fear is much deeper. Uh, so uh, what ended up, what happened with that? What um, After about 30 days, my mom finally threatened the school board with a lawyer. And I don't know if maybe she did call a lawyer or whatnot, um, but she ended up getting me transferred to a school uh, closer to home. And but the thing was, the reputation followed me, the neighborhood kids and the kids at that school. I I confided in them and told them what happened. And then the bullying continued, you know, so more self-esteem, more, you know, struggles with my self-esteem, more struggles with my self-worth. I went internal. And I started isolating from my family and my internal dialogue, my self-talk was something's wrong with me. Um, you know, there has to be something wrong with me if, if all these kids are violently attacking me. And, you know, um, you know, depression kicked in, you know, a lot of things kicked in that um, it took me a while to to figure out. And thank God, you know, due to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I was able to do some healing. And mm-hmm. then as my program enhanced you know, I did more healing. Yep. Yep. Those are big time self-esteem hits, you know, and that's one of the key things is, uh, is, is our self-esteem and, and what we, our self, uh, thought, what our about, what we, how our, what we, how we value ourselves. Uh, that's, uh, you know, most of the time when I interview somebody, you know, uh, it's a very seldom day that somebody comes in here and doesn't have some kind of trauma in their past. I yeah. Think, uh, you know, um, what did you have drinking in your family? 
Yes. Yes. We're definitely drinkers. Yeah. Well, how about alcohol? Like to the point that you, I know we don't, we don't diagnose anybody, but you know, we get this and maybe I'll just skip that question. Um, But I have, you take that genetic component of uh, alcoholism in your family and then you mix in trauma with that. And I don't know that we have an escape, you know, that's kind of let me off the hook for a little bit of like thinking that I had something to do with this drinking thing that I have this alcoholism thing, you know, because now I believe I didn't have any escape. It would have been a miracle had I not picked up some dope and booze and started using it to medicate myself to feel better. Uh, yeah. It's almost and impossible that- for me not to do that. So exactly. And I actually talk about that in my book. Um, I mean, you know, with all that fear and trauma and chaos going on inside of us, um, you know, drugs and alcohol became my first coping skill. Yep. Yep. Same here. When I could finally exhale. Uh, All right. I found something that's uh, making me feel better. Um, Do you remember your first drink? Do you remember your first drink? Um, yeah, I remember. Like drunk, like starting. So I remember as a kid, every so often, you know, the adults would give me a sip of beer and I didn't yeah. like it. Same here. Um, at 12 years old, I remember my parents had a New Year's Eve party and I snuck to the garage and stole some beers from me and my cousin and I drank them. But I don't remember getting drunk. Um, but I do remember at 14, it was full throttle. Wow. You know, it was full yeah. throttle for me and I was drinking every day. Wow. At 14. Yeah. 14 was a crazy year. Um, I was in a car accident and I was prescribed opiates. Mm-hmm. So I started taking the opiates and that's really how I, I got into alcohol as well is because I realized alcohol enhanced the effect of my pain medication. Yep. And I also started smoking marijuana at 14. So it was full throttle at 14. Wow. Yeah. You know, with all that trauma, like I said, and all that chaos, I mean, that was my coping skill. I feel like I could breathe in my skin when I had drugs and alcohol in me, yep. you know, I, all that fear and all that chaos, like it was numb and I yep. could just be me. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, it says right on the bottle there, uh, alcohol will <laughs> if enhance the effects of this. And it's like, Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It attracts us rather than scares us. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to talk about your book a bit, but I also want to kind of get your history in here a little bit. How did life uh, proceed from there? What did, how did life proceed from that point? What, I mean, I know we drink and we drink and then, you know, usually we hit a wall or we continue to hit a number of walls or. <laughs> okay. So yes, many, many, many numbers of walls before I fully surrendered to this program. Um, so 15 years old, you know, that was 14, 15 years old. It moved to acid. Uh, 16 years old, it moved to ecstasy. And the whole time I was selling, you know, every drug that I I took, I was also selling, Um, you know, looking back now through this program and doing some deep inventory work, I realized my drug dealing was more of a self-esteem thing, supply and demand. You know, the kids my age couldn't get the drugs that I can get from my my cousins and the kids my age wanted the drugs I had and I had what they wanted. You know, they, um, they had what I needed. I mean, they yeah. looked up at me and I was the cool kid and I, I was accepted. So yeah. my drug dealing was more for self-esteem reasons than it was financial. But the financial, of course, when you're doing drugs and getting free drugs from selling them, yeah. you know, of course, it's a win-win when you're stuck in that chaos. Yeah. You know? Yep. Because I need you to like me. 
you know, yes. and, and, and exactly. whatever that takes, uh, I'll do it. Yeah. yeah. Really I mean, I can, I, I can take physical pain all day. I can get beat up and, and be okay. But I mean, you know, God forbid you don't like me, you know, you hurt my feelings. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's the end of the world. Yeah. We have, a, um, we have some parallel things in that neighborhood too. Uh, <laughs> you know, I haven't, right. I, I, I haven't have, I, I somehow or another made a, you know, always had a decent income as a kid. <laughs> and so that meant I always had something to smoke and I could pay for something to drink and, yes. and it got me friends. Yes, exactly. Uh, right. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so things, you know, things progressed from there. Um, I met my, my first son's mother and, you know, of course she partied, but not like me. I was always a friend that went to extremes you know, that was another thing that fed my ego is I always wanted to be the one that can go to extreme. Well, at least I thought it was looking back now, my, my addiction and my progression and my alcoholism and my progression um, were very intense from a young age. And I thought I had control back then, but looking back now, I mean, I drank alcoholically and I drugged, you know, alcoholically too. Um, so um, I met my son's mother. I think I was 17 turning 18 and shortly later she got pregnant and um you know this is where i see the second part of step one kick in in my life the unmanageability part is because she looked at me and said hey it's time to be a family man it's time to you know be a father and get your stuff together and she's like i don't care if you drink after work you know you can't get drunk and she's like i don't care if you smoke weed but she's like all the hard drugs have to stop and all the selling drugs have to stop it's time to man up and and you know be with the family and at first, you know, I wanted it and I was like, yes. And, um, you know, after, you know, somebody's limiting my, my alcoholism and somebody's limiting my drug intake, um, I get miserable. Yep. And that's why I see the unmanageability is, is I couldn't manage my emotions and I couldn't manage my cravings and my thoughts back then. And I was craving like the obsession that was going on inside of me, although I was, you know, maybe having a couple beers after work, the obsession for more inside of me made me so miserable that she ended up leaving me. Um, my son was like three months old when she left me and you know, you'd think you'd be heartbroken. You just lost your family, but it was like, I could breathe again that, you know, somebody was not controlling my, my alcoholism or my drug use and I could go do what I want. Yep. And um, I started partying again. I started selling drugs again. This time it moved to cocaine. Um, I never really liked cocaine. So I, you know, I was an opiate person, opiate and alcohol. And so that's yeah. And that's when I found Oxy 80s, you know, the pills were real big in South Florida. Yeah. Um, I found Xanax and, you know, looking back now, I was taking dangerous amounts that could have, you know, killed me and I didn't know any better. Um, and then I ended up, you know, because I started selling drugs again, um, I ended up getting my parents' house raided when I was 19 years old. And that was the first time I got sent to prison. And um, I got sent to prison 16 months with, and I got three years of probation. And because I was 20. Man, I've lost you again. The audio went out right when you said you were 21. Sometimes we can cut the, I like to see it though. So I don't want to go all uh, audio. Sorry. How much did you get of that? So you said, so when I was 21, Okay. So, um, actually when I was 20 years old, I got sent to prison my first time. Yep. The 16 and, months. Yes. And, um, they sent me to this place and the nickname for it was gladiator school. 
And as soon as I got off the bus, I'm on this prison compound for, for one hour. And as part of initiation, which they called Friday night fight night, I had to fight three people back to back. Insanity. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was only there for an hour and um, that set the pace for my whole 16 months, you know, and, and looking back now, it it kind of made that childhood trauma of the bullying come up. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I left there with more fear and more trauma and I didn't heal. And what it did was triggered my original trauma. And so I left there unhealed and I go on probation and, you know, the probation officer is like, hey, there's zero tolerance. If you mess up, you're going back to prison. And while I was sitting with her, I could have passed the lie detector test and I meant it. And I was like, listen, I'm going to be a model person on probation. I'm not going to spit on the sidewalk. I'm not going to jaywalk like you're going to have no trouble out of me. An hour later, I'm drinking and drugging because that's where powerlessness kicks in my life. Yeah. Uh, needless to say, you know, I violate probation four times. Um, the judge kept giving me chance after chance. And, um, you know, during that, it was like about a two and a half year period, you know, I, I, you know, was beating the system, but then getting caught, beating the system, then getting caught, getting slaps on the wrist. Um, in that time period, I met my second son's mother and, um, you know, she ends up getting pregnant and, um, she has my, my son while I was in jail and I get out and, you know, I create the family life with her and I end up, you know, giving in and relapsing. And I'm hiding it behind her back and I'm living that double life. And eventually everything catches up to me again. And that's when I got sent to prison my second time. Um, This time it was 27 months in prison. And um, while I was in there, you know, I signed up for this drug program that they had in there. And it was very different um, than anything I've experienced. It was like a therapeutic community. And it did have some healing, you know, some, some stuff that healed me but it never dug deep to the core. It was very superficial program. And they never talked about addiction or alcoholism being a disease. Mm-hmm. They gave me this idea that once I go through that, that program, that 90 day program, then I'm healed and I'm never an addict or alcoholic again. And I thought it was that simple. And um, before I left to go to prison, um, I called home on Valentine's day and um, my son's mother told me that she was leaving me for another man. Did the audio cut out? Nope, I'm listening. Okay, Your radio sorry. stopped moving, but I'm still hearing you, man. Okay, sorry, it froze on this. The screen froze. Um, so she was actually um sitting next to another man on Valentine's Day, telling me that she's leaving me for him, and you know it broke my heart. And um, yeah, but it was the blame game for me, you know, and it was always everybody else's fault. It was the judge's fault I got locked up. It's the probation officer's fault that they busted me. It's the officer's fault for busting me with drugs. It's her fault for leaving me. It's his fault for interfering in a relationship. And, um, you know, I had a lot of resentment then. And I went to prison. And for 27 months, I told myself, um, you know, I've, I've cost myself two families. I've affected two of my children. Um, I keep getting locked up, losing freedom. And I'm just going to say no when I get out. And I'm going to change my life. And then the first day out, um, I'm drinking and drugging again. Yeah. And this time I have no probation to, you know, try to monitor me. So the, the, the chains are off and things get bad very quick. Um, you know, South Florida was really big at that time for the pain mills. I was doctor shopping. I was doing all kinds of stuff. I had a job and my addiction wasn't so, uh, unmanageable at that point. But then all of a sudden, um, you know, the FBI and, and the DAA started shutting down these doctor's offices. 
And then little by little, I go from having a big supply of opiates to, you know, now once again, some the government's controlling, you know, my, my addiction. And um, this is where things started getting really bad. I started selling drugs for somebody that was, you know, selling a lot of drugs. Um, some of my, the people I would, I would get drugs for, um, they would use other drugs besides opiates. And I became what we call here in South Florida, a trash can junkie. You know, whatever went into the needle is what I would use. Um, you know, I was using very large amounts. Um, I'm lucky I didn't, you know, overdose and pass away because I have had some overdoses. Um, things got really bad. And during that time, you know, alcohol was always in the story with me. You know, I always had to have alcohol. Um, but I always... I never thought I was an alcoholic because I always thought the drugs were my problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I end up getting locked up again. And this time while I'm locked up, um, the girl that I was dating, her family stepped in, they made her go to treatment. And while I'm in jail, she's writing me from this treatment center and she's telling me how great recovery is. And they were a 12 step um, treatment center where they pushed you to go to meetings and get a sponsor and she gets out, she goes to a sober living and she's working with a sponsor and she's working the steps and she's involved. And um, my father bonded me out and I go with her to some young people AA meetings around here in South Florida. And the treatment centers are really big in this area. So there's people from all over. Oh, I know from I know quite a few people who went to Florida for treatment. <laughs> yes, we get a uh, we get a couple from your state here at the place I work. Um, so I'm walking up to these people and they're happy and they're joyous and they're free. And I'm walking up to them and I'm, I'm questioning them to see if this thing is for real. And as I'm talking to them, you know, they're alcoholics and they're in AA, but I'm like, Hey, do you, you know, do you dabble with other substances? And then they say yes. And I'm like, okay, cause I'm really questioning them to see if it's possible. So I'm like, okay, what else? And you know, one guy tells me he's three years sober from alcohol and opiates. And I'm like, you don't have any cravings. Like you're happy today. And he's telling me yes. And I'm looking at him in eyes and like, I could see that he's free from his addiction and his alcoholism. Oh, now we lost the audio again. Hang on. We'll get it back. Just talk so that, uh, I know when it comes back in, I see you. I can see you moving. Look, there you go. There we go. All right. How much of that did you get? Sorry. Yeah, well, that and I didn't keep you talking. You just said that you had uh, you could see the you could see it in the people's eyes that they were telling you the truth about being quit, you know, and being happy. So, yes, um, you know, I, I started questioning them and I just wanted to see if this thing was for real because I wanted to have hope in it. But I had so much fear in me that I was scared it wouldn't work for me. Yeah. And I started getting hope and little by little, you know, I picked a home group. I got a sponsor. Um, I dragged my feet getting my sponsor and I always stress this in my story. Um, when I finally asked them to sponsor me, you know, I told Now everything locked up. Right. Like I wasted time by not grabbing him. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so we'll fast forward. I end up relapsing and I kept going to meetings and I wanted it. But once I picked back up that obsession, right, the, the I mean, the powerlessness, you know, the the it just kicked in and I, I could not stop. Um, 
I joke. I mean, let's try the no video thing because it's starting to I hate to not do that, but uh, I think it's I think in order to preserve the quality of the audio, I'm going to need to do that. Chip and I left and I drank and I got high. Yeah. Hang, man, we're uh, breaking up pretty good here now. OK. Uh, yeah. I'm thinking that to, maybe we just ought to turn off your video. Uh, OK. I, you know, and I don't know if it'll help us keep mine on, but I know that helps sometime in Zoom meetings and, and I can do it from my end if you can't find it. But uh, to keep the audio going, uh, sometimes that that's the solution. OK, um, I'm looking for it on my end. Because... I can do it. I'm okay. do it right now. OK. All right. Does that help any? Yeah, uh, right now, it actually sounds a whole lot clearer just instantly. Okay, perfect. So, so what I lost was that you you picked the sponsor and 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 something, and then you relapsed. So so yes, um, you know my sponsor told me I told him I I you know was scared to ask him, and I waited three weeks, and you know he told me that it was important that I. I left and I drank and got high. I went to a 5.30 meeting and I picked up a white chip and then I left and drank and got high. And then I went to a 7.30 meeting and I picked up a white chip and I left and drank and got high. Yeah. Because once I, once And, and I'm on bond and um, because I was on bond and I get arrested, um, now I cannot get out of jail. I'm stuck in there. And while I was in there, I signed up for the drug program, but this time it was very different from the time that I was in it before. It was not a therapeutic community. It was more therapy based with very, very heavy. Man, we are breaking up really, really bad. could you hear me no uh how much did you get man uh it, it went through a series of breaking up bad and uh i kind of rolled with it for a minute because i couldn't i'm just i'm powerless about doing anything about it <laughs> uh i'm thinking if there would be a a better way if I what I can do to fix that because it's cutting out big chunks of your story and I don't want to lose that. Um, and I don't know if uh, another medium would be better. There's some ones I can just do without that are just straight up audio uh, things like over the telephone. Okay. Um, or we can just keep on trying and I can keep on backing you back up and putting it back together. Uh, the editing back. You said, uh, I'm, I heard you get back on bond again, but I couldn't hear why. Okay. Um, and I heard the part about going to a five thirty meeting and getting a chip and walk and, and, and 
then going to a 730 and then drinking and then going to yes. a 730 meeting and drinking again, yes. or getting a white chip and then drinking again. Mm-hmm. So I caught that stuff. Okay. And then uh, you, it sounded like you went back to jail because uh, you went back to jail for something. And you said, because you were out on bond, you couldn't get bond. Yes. Correct. What'd you okay. go back to? What was that? What, how come you, what got you back in jail at that time? Um, I started committing burglaries. Yeah. You know, that's, that's one thing I said I would never do. Yeah. And that was a, that was a moral, that was a moral I broke, um, you know, in addiction. Yep. And by breaking my morals, of course, you know, now I really need to numb it more. Yeah. Because that when you're sober or when you're abstinent from substances, those thoughts come in and those emotions. And I really like hated myself for doing that. Yeah. Um, So I land back in jail and this time I sign up for the drug program. And this time the drug program was ran by a different staff and it was a different program. It was more therapy based and very heavy on the 12 steps. Hmm. And when I got in there, because I was in meetings before I I got locked up and entered this program, I was kind of like a parrot. You know, I went in there and my hope was destroyed because I relapsed. Um, I wanted it. I just didn't think it was possible for me, but I'd go in there and I'd regurgitate things that I heard in meetings. Yeah. And it was in my head, just not in my heart at that point. Yeah. I think that's a kind of a normal thing is that we, uh, we, we start we start to learn to speak 12 step before we really have got it in us. And I'm not hearing you. Um, come on. I'm back. It's back. Okay. So I was, I was like a parrot regurgitating these things that I heard in these meetings. And um, while I was in there, my lawyer comes and sees me one day and she says, because this is your third time going to prison, the state attorney's giving you a habitual felony offender sentence and by law, you have to get 30 years. And I looked at her and I told her, I'm not taking that deal. And she said, no, by law, you have to get this deal. And I remember it hitting me and I'm like, my alcoholism took me too far this time. Yeah. My drug addiction took me too far this time and there's no coming back. So I go back to the dorm and the first person I call is the ex-girlfriend. Uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. And she says, we need to talk. And I said, yes, we do. And she says, my sponsor said that we're toxic and I need to leave you. Mm. And I'm like, well, good. Cause I'm getting 30 years and I hang up on her. And then I call my parents and my dad will always be there for me and always talk to me. And I, and my mom's mad at me. She won't talk to me, but my mom answers. And she tells me, your lawyer just called here to talk to your dad. Um, I don't know what she told him, but whatever she told him, gave him a heart attack. He's on his way to the hospital. She goes, you probably killed your dad. Don't ever call back here again. And then I hang up that call. And the last person that would even answer my phone call was my second son's mother. And she answers the phone and she says, I just hung up with your first son's mother. Both of the kids are acting out at home. They're acting out in school. You did this. Don't call back here till you get your life together. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, I just got the worst news of my life. My alcoholism and my drug addiction took me too far this time. There's no coming back and nobody even wants, there's no one there for me that will even accept my call. And I could share this bad message with. Yeah. And I felt so alone. And I started thinking about suicide at that point. Mm-hmm. Long story short, um, that night, a volunteer brought in an AA meeting 
And that was the first time I ever got honest and vulnerable in an AA meeting. And I told everybody I was thinking about killing myself and I told them what was going on. Yeah. And afterwards that, that gentleman, that volunteer, he came up to me and he asked me if I was done. And I said, yes. And then he said, would you be willing to meet me in a chapel every Wednesday? And we start going through the 12 steps. And I said, yes. Um, that man is still my sponsor today. Um, I was with him last night. Um, we went to a meeting and um, we went out to eat dinner. Um, he's definitely been, you know, a hero in my life. Yeah. Um, so I we did not have, or go ahead. We have a lot of commonality and that's kind of the same thing. You know, there's a, and sometimes I hear stories that aren't even close to mine for sure. But, uh, yes, you know, it was a, it was a six to 20 year prison sentence for burglary that, that oh, wow. turned my corner. And, uh, and I got honest, I was telling, I was going pretend. I, what I said, I was pretending to be sober. I was going in meetings and stuff and pretending to be sober. And, uh, one night that just got too heavy for me and I dumped what was, we called a burning desire and, uh, and got honest with this group of guys and, and a gentleman come up and, uh, offered to be my sponsor. I didn't ask him mm-hmm. and uh, he offered <laughs> to be my sponsor and he took me through the steps and here I am. The same man is a almost, I mean, I, he's my best friend today. Yes. So uh, a lot of parallels. Yeah. See, that's why, that's why um, you stumbled across my Facebook message about the book. Yeah. <laughs> and the spirit told you to talk to me. Yeah. Um, so I always stress the fact that I did not have my step one experience with my, with my sponsor, but the week that I was starting step one with him, um, a counselor had came into the program and somebody said, what are we doing for group today? And he said, it's powerlessness week. And somebody else said, why are we devoting a whole uh, week to step one? And the, the counselor said, because if I can get you to do step one and you program that you were powerless and you do the step 100%, he said, I guarantee you'll never drink or drug again. Hmm. And that caught my attention. So I was starting step one that week. I raised my hand and I looked at him and I'm like, I, I'm like, if you're serious about this, like I call you, I'm going to pay attention all week. I'm going to do it hundred percent. And while he was reading the book of Alcoholics Anonymous to me, um, you know, I mentioned in my story earlier that I always thought I was an addict. I never thought I was an alcoholic Yeah. as he's reading this big book to me. I'm like, oh my God, that's my story. Like I drink like that. And I raised my hand and I'm like, um, Jeff, you know, I think I'm more of a, a, an addict than an alcoholic. I don't think I'm an alcoholic because there's a time I can have one beer and walk away. And really what my mind was doing was manipulating itself because at 21 years old, I went into a bar to see if I can have one beer and walk away. And I did at 21 and I was still living on that in my head 10 years later. I totally get it. <laughs> and he looked at me and he goes, well, what is your experience show? And yep. he got me thinking and I'm like, well, I drink the blackout. I'm like, isn't that the only way to drink? And you had that. Yeah, dis- right. Disappeared again. All right. Um, I, I kind of know where I cut off, I think. So I remember growing up when the adults would drink, you know, they would drink to blackout. Yep. So I always thought that was normal. So I always drink to oblivion myself. So I told, I told the counselor, that's what I did. And then he said, well, what else? And I said, well, every time I try to stop doing substances, alcohol brings me back every time. 
And he looked at me and he said, you're an alcoholic. Mm. And it hit me and I felt peace because I surrendered right there. And, you know, I'm facing 30 years in jail and everybody gave up on me. And I surrendered to my alcoholism and my drug addiction. And I felt peace for the first time. The fight was over. Yeah. Um, I went through step two. Um, I was raised on a Catholic God. So I had some fundamental idea about God when I was in prison the first time I, I converted to Christianity. Um, but I had conflict between Christian and my Catholic uh, upbringing and, and the Christianity. Yeah. So I believed in God. I just didn't really understand my higher power, which I still fully don't to this day. Right. The connection's way better today. I could tell you that. Yeah. Um, I, I truly so, believe the guys that say that thing about, well, if I got to a point where I could understand it, it wouldn't be big enough. Yeah. Right. That's true. I'll, actually, I might, I might steal that from you because we say it a little different around here. Yeah. Um, so, I went through step two. My sponsor was like, you don't have any issues with your higher power, but he had me write down, you know, some things and we did some reading. And then I went to step three and he had me do the third step prayer. And at this point I was not sold that God was going to help me at all. And I lied to my sponsor and I said, I thought God would, but he had me go back and do the third step prayer. And I did. And I remember standing up from saying that prayer and I was waiting for like a lightning bolt to hit me and it didn't happen. But I realized I started having hope in God. Yeah. And, um, so I got to step four and I remember, you know, people were, you know, talked about relapsing before they got to step four and how scary it was, mm -hmm. but the books said be honest and thorough from the very start. And for some reason that always stuck to me. Hmm. So I was honest and thorough and I went through that four step and I put everything on there. But the scary part for me was doing my fifth step with my sponsor and telling him everything. Right. And I sat in the chapel of the jail and I did my fifth step and I was waiting for my sponsor to judge me. And he looked at me and he says, well, the good news is, is I forgive you. And so does God mm. right then and there. I had a white light spiritual awakening. Oh yeah. Yes. Um, nice. We went 15 minutes over. We had an hour to do my fifth step and we went 15 minutes over and my sponsor had talked off sir into let me stay till we finished. But as um, soon as we were done, the officer pretty much yanked me up and we had to walk back to my dorm and um, as we're walking through the hallway, the walls used to be like a dirty white and the windows were up real high and it was raining outside. So it's gray. There's no sun coming through, but I'm walking through the halls and the walls are glowing. They're fluorescent white. And I look at the officer and I'm like, did you guys just paint the walls? And he's like, no, why? I'm like, the walls are glowing. And the officer took like a little sidestep back and cocked his head and gave me a dirty look. And basically I always joke with uh, people. And it was like, the officer was looking at me like, what kind of psych meds are you on? Mm. <laughs> so I walked back into the dorm and I had a friend in there that was one year sober. He had a sponsor. He worked the steps. He was working in treatment, but he had committed a, a charge like two years prior that finally caught up with him. And um, as I'm walking in, he noticed a difference in my appearance right away. Yeah. And it reminds me, somebody showed me in the big book where Abby uh, showed up at Bill's house and he said, there's a different look in his eyes. Right. And I always like, once I told my story and someone showed me that, like, I'm like, okay, there's another part of the big book that's came real for my life. Right. Yeah. But my friend, my friend, Craig, he looked at me. My friend, Craig, he looked at me. We lost the audio again. My friend Craig looked at me.
My friend Craig looked at me. Okay. So my, my friend, friend Craig, Craig there you go. Cool. My friend Craig looked at me and um, he knew something was different. He said, what's up with me? And I looked at him and the only thing I could relate to the feeling I was feeling is like I was high. Yep. So I told him, I'm like, I said, I feel like I'm high. He's like, what? I'm like, I feel like electricity is going through my body. He's like, what? And I'm like, I just did my fifth step. And he told me, he's like, you just had a spiritual awakening. Anyways, um, the feeling was so overwhelming. My sponsor told me to go back and meditate for one hour to make sure, you know, I, steps one through five were intact. Uh-huh. Uh, the feeling was so overwhelming. I did not meditate. I passed out. Oh, did you? Yes. And when the doors popped open, they had an AA meeting come in with three volunteers. And I shared at the meeting what happened. And all three of them confirmed that I had my spiritual awakening. Yeah. And I went back after that. I did my hour of meditation because I didn't want to, you know, skimp on that. Yeah. Let's follow the directions. And um, we went through six and seven. And my sponsor stressed the importance of six and seven and told me that my whole program is going to rest on humility. And my sponsor is very big on humility and, and giving God credit and allowing God to work through me and take away my character defects and, and use my assets to help other people. Um, and I'm very grateful for my sponsor and, and, and constantly reminding me to stay humble and let God run the show. Yeah. Um, we went through steps eight because I was going to prison. My sponsor told me to write letters to certain people, certain people I could do phone calls, certain people I had to wait to get out. Certain people were living amends, certain people were financial amends. We went through the whole thing. And I started my letters right away. And one of the first ones I did was I heard someone say that their sponsor made them do the hard one first. Mm -hmm. So I wrote my son's um, new boyfriend, the one that left me on Valentine's day. And I wrote him and it was the most healing amends that I made. Um, you know, he understood my addiction. He understood my alcoholism. He understood my struggles and he wrote me a really good letter back. And he told me he never, he didn't have to forgive me because he never held anything against me. Yeah. And um, I thought this man hated me. You know, I told him, right. you know, me and him, were going to kill each other. If we seen him like in my head, like, you know, I threatened him, he threatened me and it was just going to be this big war, but like, it was so healing um, just to let that part go, you know, but I realized in my four step, it was all my doing. Everything was all my doing. And I played the victim and everything. Right. Yep. So then we went through 10. He showed me the importance of, you know, step 10, which I still practice to this day. Um, step 11, he stressed prayer and meditation, you know, two-way prayer and staying connected to God, but also listening to God. And then we got to step 12. And after we read the chapter, working with others, I looked at my sponsor and I said, what next? And he said, what next? Now it's time to start sponsoring. Yep. And I looked at him and I said, but I'm an inmate in jail and I'm going to prison. Like, who's going to want me to sponsor them? And he said, don't worry, me and chaplain, uh, me and the chaplain are going to get together. And we're going to pray every Wednesday in our prayer circle. And we're going to pray for God to put people in your life that you can help. Yep. And for over seven years, every Wednesday they meet and they pray for me still to this day. And let me tell you, God has answered that prayer because I have an influx of people I help on a daily basis. Right. Yeah. Um, so needless to say, you know, God worked in my life because right after I finished my 12 steps, my court had got postponed a couple times. And I mean, immediately after I finished my 12 steps, I had an emergency hearing. And <laughs> as I'm in front of the judge, the state attorney walks up to the judge with this paper and habitual felony offender me with a 30 year sentence. And, um, I, you know, I prayed, I asked God to speak through me so I could speak to the judge. And I said what I had to say. 
And I told the judge how I was finally changing my life through this program, but I also took accountability. I said, yes, your honor, I did these things and it kills me that I, I, I broke my morals and I committed burglaries. I was under the influence, but at the end of the day, like I need to be a man and be responsible for my crimes. So whatever you see fit, you know, you're the judge. I'm going to accept whatever you see fit, but please have leniency on me. And the judge took a recess. And when he came back, he gave me a, a habitual felony offender sentence, but he gave me six years in prison and four years probation, which was a total of 10 years. And I'm sitting there and I'm like at peace. And I'm like, mm-hmm. am I stuck right now? Because I just got, this is the most time in prison I've ever got. And I'm at peace. Yeah. And I, I hear, I heard in my own voice and I'll never forget it. Um, in my own voice, I heard, don't worry, no matter what you go through, God's got you. It's going to be okay. It was something like along the lines of that. Hmm. And um, I remember they were doing my fingerprints and I'd started debating in my head. I'm like, was that really God or am I in shock? You know? Yeah. But that peace remained. Um, Shortly after that, I get sent to prison. Um, Prison is in Florida is chaos. A lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol. Officers don't get paid a lot. So the officers bring it in. They get paid cash to bring it in. Um, you know, everybody's partying, not too many people are not too many people, everybody's partying, not too many people are. We lost you again. All right, there I am. Yeah. Can you see that you're lost? I see. Yeah. It freezes on your end. When you freeze, I can tell and I'll stop talking. Okay. I'll ask uh, you if you can hear me. The, uh, uh, you said that uh, that <laughs> I was saying it that uh, not too many people are sober. I think is what you were getting ready to say. Everybody's partying, yes. and not too many people are. So yes, in the, in the prison system here, everybody's pre- it's pretty much one big party. There's a lot of drugs and alcohol. There's even street alcohol that's being brung in. Yeah. And if you have the money in there, you can get whatever you want. I mean, anything you want. Yeah, I've heard um, that. And I, there was a point in my early sobriety that when people told me they had been to prison, uh, now I got an echo, um, that I thought that meant they were sober. And I found out, no, that doesn't. Just because you're locked up, it means nothing you do not have. doesn't mean you're sober. Yes. You know, it's it's 90% of the population in there is getting high and, and drinking. Um, but I got involved in AA right away. I started chairing meetings. I started sponsoring men. One of my sponsees suggested I start teaching this IOP program and get my hours, have the, the clinical director write off of my hours so I get my CAC when I got out. Um, I started teaching this IOP program. The counselors took a liking in me and God opened up the doors. And while I was in prison, I earned my CAC, my certified addictions counselor. Um, it was completely paid for by another organization. And when I say the doors just opened, like yeah. everything just fell into place. And that's how I knew it was God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I started writing articles for the Alcoholics Anonymous grapevine and, um, then I got transferred. The officers didn't like that. I got my CAC and I was helping other inmates. So I got transferred to another prison. And when I got there, there was no AAs, nobody in recovery. It was one big party. And could you hear me? Yep. I'm hearing. So this is where I, this is where I dove into the big book even further. Um, you know, I had three, four years of sobriety at that time. Um, I started writing articles for the AA Grapevine. I have five articles published in the Grapevine. One of them is in the um, prison edition book, Free on the Inside. Um, 
that's where I, I started seeing my love for writing. You know, when I see my first article published and I realized how many people were getting help from my words, mm-hmm. from my, my writings, I fell in love with writing then. Um, so I ended up going to a work release, um, you know, work release program. And while I was at that work release program, my sponsor got permission to take me to meetings. And I was going to one meeting a week and I ran into one of my dad's friends that I had no clue that was 30 years sober. Mm-hmm. And when I got released, he asked me to go speak at a meeting and I told him I would. He told me there's only 20 people there, not to be nervous. And I show up at this meeting and there's 150 people. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there's a podium and a microphone. And I was so nervous that I looked at my sponsor and I said, I'm not doing this. And my sponsor looked at me and he said, yes, you are. Mm-hmm. And I got up there and I told my story and, you know, fresh out of prison, I, feel, I felt like I was going to be judged for that. My, my sobriety might look different. But out of those 150 people, about 70 people stood in line and came up to me and told me how much my story helped them. Yeah. And one of those guys, he asked me if I would go speak at his treatment center. And I said, yes. And I went there and spoke. And the two AAs that brought that meeting in um, introduced me to an amazing um, men's meeting. And I went to that men's meeting in January. Um, I was released from prison in December. I went to that men's meeting in January. I was chairing that meeting by February. Yeah, man. And by chairing that, by chairing that meeting, it's funny when the auto goes out like that, I lose my echo too. You said by chairing that meeting. So by chairing that men's meeting, the community um, started to get to know me. Mm-hmm. And I started getting asked to go speak at other meetings. And, and next thing I knew, I found myself in the center of AA. Yeah. And um, right around that time is the time COVID hit and they started shutting down majority of the meetings around here. Mm-hmm. And me and one of my friends, we looked at each other and we said, people are going to lose their mind with no meetings. Like we need to do something. And me and him started, let's see, one, two, three, four. We started five meetings during COVID. So there was a meeting every day of the week. Um, one of them was every day and, and the other, the other four were, uh, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday night. So there was a meeting every day of the week during COVID the officers around here seen we were doing something good. Um, they never shut us down. Um, we respected the six foot rule and the mask rule and stuff like that. Um, but there was a bunch of treatment centers and stuff that they were sending their clients to our meetings. And the crazy thing is, is like starting these meetings is like, there's people still sober today, like that pick up their anniversary, their, their medallions and right. they give credit. And they say, if those meetings were not open, they probably would not be sober. Yeah, I'm man. like, that's amazing to see how God worked through me and other AAs to make that possible. Yeah. Um, I call them miracles. Yes. Uh, I have a list of them in a similar way. My sponsor, I got this echo. I hope it doesn't bleed through that. Uh, my sponsor told me to start writing these things down because I would forget about them. And he was right. So I actually started noting every time one of these things happened, I wrote it in this list that has turned out to be my miracle list. Actually, my sponsor gave me the same suggestion a while ago and I've neglected it. So I probably need to get back to it. Yeah. 
because uh, I go, I spoke the other day on a podcast that was not a recovery podcast. It was a small business podcast. And uh, if it wasn't good, if it wasn't for my miracle list, because I'm, I, I thought, you know, I'll get that back out again and kind of peruse it. And yep, sure enough, man, some of that stuff, the new miracles come in and I have, I had the, the old ones had slipped my mind. Yes, yeah, true. Very true. That built in forgetter. Yep. It's like a long-term gratitude list, sort of. Okay. So those meetings, yeah, uh, that is good on you. You know, I didn't even think, you know, I know some people were still meeting in their backyards and doing this like clandestine AA meetings around here. Uh, a lot of the meetings around here are held at churches and the church is closed, you know, yeah. so then you couldn't get in the building anymore. Uh, and so good on you all for uh uh doing the end around uh on <clears throat> you know, zoom kept me kept me alive during it and i know a lot of guys say this kind of we kind of joke around people go i don't like zoom but you know uh a whole lot of the things that that i didn't want to do are the exact things that's been most valuable in my recovery and uh starting to do meetings by zoom turned out to be one of those Could you hear me now? And just now, I heard that perfectly. <laughs> you cut out for about maybe ten seconds. Yeah, I'll bet I'm still getting recorded. I'll bet. I bet it just didn't get transmitted. But I said, you know, that a lot. Did you hear me say about people said I don't like Zoom? Yes. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, there's a whole lot of things in recovery, especially in the beginning, that I didn't want to do, <laughs> but doing yeah. them is what you know turned in being the most in, doing things I don't want to do are usually the most impactful things in my life. I, I agree. And I always say that AA is the best thing that I've never wanted. Yeah, right. No doubt. So the, uh, the, you know, and if it, that if so many people don't get what you and I have got because of that, not putting themselves in the middle and, and open themselves up, being open to this, like complete surrender to the program. That means if a guy comes up and asks me to sponsoring, I'm almost, I'm I almost have to, I don't pick my sponsees. Uh, God does that for lack of a better way to say it. Um, you know, one of the places where I see people who are not getting a, a big dose of what I have gotten is uh, they don't sponsor people. Yes. And, uh, you know, I, another one, you know, guys say, uh, I can't really meditate, you know, and it's like this program is some kind of a la carte thing where you get to pick and choose which of these 12 steps you want to participate in. And, uh, for me, it's all 12 and, 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 and a big dose of, of all of them. No, I, I firmly agree with that statement too. So you work in this recovery center now? So, yes, um, you know, right around that time that COVID hit and we were starting those meetings, I did get a job offer to work at one treatment center and it was part time as a nighttime group facilitator. And then it went to full time and then I transitioned into a therapist and then God opened up another door and I moved um, to another treatment center with that's ran by um, another AA that's 10 years sober. And uh, this man, my boss, has such an amazing heart for helping people. Um, and the, the community and the treatment center that he's built here is like no other. Wow. Um, he doesn't force he doesn't force AA on anybody. Um, he lays out many paths. You know, we lay out many paths through our groups. Um, but a lot of the clients, you know, do gravitate towards. We have a really amazing 12 step fellowships around here in the community. Mm hmm. 
Um, but you know, there's some that I work on that, you know, have trauma and they use for their trauma. And, and once they work through their trauma and they heal, they don't go back to drinking and drugging. Yeah. You know, the Alcoholics Anonymous book describes the different types of drinkers. Um, you know, I know I'm the real alcoholic. I know I'm the real drug addict and I know I need to be involved in AA for the rest of my life. Um, but by working in this field, I've witnessed miracles where someone just dives into some childhood trauma and um, identifies how that trauma affected them and it's still affecting them and they resolve it. And by resolving it, they they're happy and they're joyous and they're free and they no longer have a desire to drink and drug and they can walk away. Yeah. And it's, you know, the big books taught me, you know, if they could walk away without this program and still be happy and joyous and free, you know, my hat's off to them. Yep. You know? Yep. That's uh, I have to be real careful. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm a big book thumper and I really believe yes. in this message a me lot, too. you know, and I tend to want to like prescribe it for everything. Yes. I have to be careful about that, that, uh, you know, I do still feel that I'm, I feel that there's something where I, I'm responsible for at least setting it down as an option. I, I firmly agree. And, um, you know, I used to think that if they were in treatment, they were the real alcoholic and they were the real drug addict, like the book describes mm -hmm. until I've, until, you know, some people showed me that just by working on trauma, maybe they were the hard drinker and that's how they were coping with life. But once they resolved that trauma, you know, they could walk away without a program. You know, I still have clients that hit me up that are two, three years sober yep. and they thank me for the, the help that I gave them. Yep. They don't go to meetings. You know, they, they just had some really severe trauma that they worked through. Yep. I worked with this young kid this time and we took him up to the third step prayer and I call it the third step decision. And I invite them to stop right now. You know, this is your hopping off point if you want to, because I don't want you to do a, I don't want you to start a four step and stop. And I don't want you to do a four step and not consummate it with the rest of the work that's yes. behind it. So I say, you know, if, if you don't want to do this right now, let's just stop right here. And uh, so he was at a third step decision. He called me up and wanted to know if I would come uh, to his baptism, you know, and, and I kind of smirked at that and thought, yeah, this guy thinks he's going to get baptized, baptized and get cured, you know, or, and, but I still honor that. And, and I went, sure. And I went, and then he come, we talked a day or two later and he said, no, nah, man, I don't think I am going to work these steps. I think that baptism is what I think I'm, I think I'm cured. Mm -hmm. And I kind of giggled under my breath at that, but you know, Hey man, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt when it comes yes. to things like that. And, uh, and I didn't see him for like two years, you know, I don't know whatever happened. And I was working in a built small uh, business over in Louisville doing some furniture assembly. And, uh, this FedEx guy walked in and it was this dude and it was a full two years since I'd seen him. And just as you said, you could, he, he saw me, I saw him, uh, we chit chatted for a minute. He, he invited me outside. He said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. And we walked outside and he did the same thing and thanked me for saving his life, you know, and you could see it in his eyes, you know, that yes. we can't hide this thing, man. When you got it, you got it. Yes. And, agree. Uh, and I could see in his eyes that he was fully telling me the truth. And, and, you know, and, and that event uh, by all, about about everything I could see that cured him of his need to to consume alcohol and dope. Uh, I had to open my eyes up a little bit and begin to understand that, uh, you know, uh, again, like I said in the prayer before this thing, it's your it's 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 the universe's horsepower that runs this thing, not mine. Yes, yes agreed. You know, and that's that, and witnessing that, you know, working in the.
I just had a revelation. Okay. Uh, there's a chance the cloud is recording all this, even though our transmission is not making it to one another. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't think about that either. I didn't either until just now. I thought, you know, uh, so we'll just keep on rolling. But I did miss what you said there by working in the treatment center. Okay. So working in treatment, diving into trauma, um, I always seen a correlation with working with trauma in a fourth step. Uh-huh. And my fifth year sober, I was working on emotional sobriety and, you know, working with my sponsor and another individual in AA, I learned a really thorough fear inventory. Um, so I started doing a thorough fear inventory with these clients that had trauma. And that's kind of where the idea of my book came out because Bill Wilson had this idea that the 12 steps should be for everybody, not just alcoholics and addicts. Mm -hmm. And, um, I've always had that in the back of my mind. So when I started writing the book, I wanted to make it available to everybody, but it's usually, uh, well, the book's based off of my life and some of the clients that I've worked through when they really dug deep into their fears and address those traumas, mm -hmm. the freedom that we get, um, you know, feeling connected, you know, you talked about doing that prayer and, and the universe running the show. It's like being connected, you know, once we work on eliminating those fears, you know, it's being connected to the universe and everything in the universe, which is other people. And, um, you know, finding our place in the world and, and we get happiness from it. But, um, you know, I used to hold those old ideas, you know, where I felt like I had to force the big book, you know, down everybody's throat and show them that they were powerless and they were the real alcoholic and they're, they're the real addict. Um, you know, until I started working, you know, deeper into the trauma field and starting to see like different, um, you know, people just work through the trauma and, you know, just by digging up those deep rooted fears and that trauma and healing, they were just living a better life. And some of them were not AAs or 12 step yeah. and, um, you know, just kind of opened up my, my eyes to a whole new world. Yeah. Yeah. You know, made me think that maybe, uh, maybe a, a deep fear inventory could actually be called a, a, a trauma inventory. <laughs> so it, you know, from my, from my opinion, you know, like I said, working this field, it's the same thing. A trauma timeline and a four step to me are the same thing. You know, cognitive behavior therapy that we use in treatment is the same thing. Yeah. And it's just different approaches to it, you know, but you know, you know, now and again, I'll hear a guy and I kind of I joke around about writing a book someday. That's a 12 lies that keeps us out of recovery. And you've already said a couple of them, you know, one, this, this won't work for me. Um, and one of them is, and a the guy gave me this one and I jotted it down in my notes the other night. He said, I don't, he, and now, you know, and I know that there's, this is shaky ground, but he said, I don't have any resentments <laughs> and he's a new guy, you know, and to say he doesn't have any is obviously, but you know, you know, uh, who knows what he's dealing with, right? Well, who am I to stand here and, 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 you know, play my little game like that's it, that he's lying about that. Uh, you know, maybe he's been deeply damaged, man. And, you know, that his resentments are really linked to the trauma that he's received. So in his mind, he's not like resentment in the way that I think about resentment. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe he's just badly burned. So, yes. And that's another thing that I see. I've worked with a lot of men in this area. Um, as a therapist, I've worked with women too, but, when, whenever I'm sponsoring somebody and they tell me they do not have resentments, I immediately say, okay, that's fine. Cause some people tell me they're very forgiving and they don't hold on yeah. to it. Yeah. But then I hit them with the fear inventory. Right. What are your fears? Yeah. You know, and we get down to the root cause 
And usually every time I do that, some resentments do pop up. They'll be like, oh, well, I did forget this one time. My microphone, nope. My microphone is still moving. Okay, I can hear you now. Yeah, the uh, you said uh, you were talking about hitting them with the fear inventory, and you you were getting going on to how you did that. Uh oh, back again, lost again. Actually, I am interested in knowing if this is still making it to the cloud and getting recorded, or if uh, if not, because it's going to be maybe even more hooky jerky if uh, if all of this is making it to the cloud. I hope so. Me too. Well, you know, worst case, maybe we'll just have to do it again under some kind of better circumstances. Okay. Um, you know, I do have certain, I don't worry, like I said in the beginning, I don't care. I don't need to have a, uh, a, a, a real sanitary podcast, uh, but it does have to be where it doesn't drive people nuts to listen to it. <laughs> of course, it's mostly alcoholics and addicts, so they can deal with a little more than some people can, at least uh, ones that's been around a little bit. Yeah. Again. So I, I just cut I cut out and cut back in. Yeah. You still there? Yep. I'm here. But I didn't hear you. So uh I uh, see that uh you know I was talking, but I I, I can kind of get tuned into when I lose you. Now your microphone is moving, but I don't hear anything. I don't know if it helps if I turn my camera off too. All right, I'm gonna also move out of my office and go closer to a window. That'd be probably help. All right, did you hear me now? I hear you now. Okay, perfect. It actually seemed to have just had some improved clarity. All right, yeah, I'm, I'm closer to a window. Maybe it was just my office. I haven't used Zoom in there in a while. Yeah, we didn't, I didn't have any problems with Zoom in the very beginning. And then it's like later on in Zoom life is when I started getting problems. Like a, a lot of people talked about it potentially being bandwidth issues, you know, now that everybody's using it. Yeah, that's possible too, you know. Maybe they just don't have the service to run it. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if you have a spot you want to pick up or uh, what I was going to ask you was like is – is um, well, the foresight that Bill had when he said that in this inventory, we're going to do ourselves, we're going to look at our resentments, our our fears, and our sex uh, behavior. Um, it's just, you know, so far ahead of its time, and it's proven again and again. And, you know, and I have some people, yeah. and again, I listen to a lot of recovery audio, you know, and people talk about it, and I can't really pull any off the top of my head. But, you know, Bill says that we're going to look at how the, uh, these particular manifestations of self, uh, and there's a lot of different inventories I, see, I hear people doing as they pro progress in their recovery, that they will inventory other things besides the three big ones the big book calls for. But there's also these areas where we can actually do it and do it deeper. Um, the way I the way I was taught, we we broaden the term resentments, and at some level, uh, I'm gonna ask God for results from fear. 
Uh oh. I didn't know I was talking over you. Oh, it's all right. I, I guess maybe I cut out. Yeah, I guess so, because I didn't hear you and I just kept on talking. Oh, sorry. Um, like Bill was saying, you know, with the, the, the many manifestations of self and he hit. Locked up. Jeez. Yeah. Did I lose? Did you lose me again? Yeah. Right. It demanding mass, many manifestations of self. All right. Let's try it again. Um, so when Bill's talking about the many manifestations of self and he, and he expresses that selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of our troubles. Um, you know, to me, the selfishness and self-centeredness from what I've learned derive from fear. And that's what caused me to dive even deeper into a fear inventory Did you catch that? I heard dive deeper into a fear inventory. Yes. And I stopped there. Okay. You did. Okay. I, I wondered if that was uh sometimes I wonder maybe we need to like a walkie talkies and Roger and over now. <laughs> uh, so can you, uh, you know, I know that you have a book for sale on Amazon now that describes this. Yes. Uh, I would assume in depth uh, without like letting the cat out of the bag, uh, how's it describe what it does, what you're doing without, you know, telling the whole thing. Okay. So what I do is I, I talk about the two main fears. Every, every fear has either one or both of the two main fears. And um, I just kind of give like a formula how to. All right. Did I cut out again? Yeah, it stopped at looking at the two main forms of fear and then it stopped. So I've learned um, there's usually one of two fears. Um, right. Sometimes everything has both fears. Yep. Um, but what I do is I talk about the trauma and the things that I've overcame in my life, but I talk about the problem and the fear and how it's affected me. And then I talk about how I worked on, you know, overcoming that fear. Mm -hmm. The reason I like to use my story is every time I use my story with my sponsees or my clients, it gets them to reflect on their life. Yeah. And by reflecting on their life, they could think about what their fear is and how they, how it's affected their life. Yeah. You know, whether it's anger, self-pity, you know, Hey, I mean, I can go down the list, you know, resentment, you know, we, we carry these, these surface level fears, but we never attack the source of the fear and go deeper. We never look at how that fear, that core fear affects us throughout our life and our decision-making. And we wonder why we're self-will run riot. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I come to understand that the majority of the decisions I've made in my life were based on a fear. It was based yes. on that, you know, and that's one of the things that my sponsor helped me see as uh, we walk through that stuff, uh, it's interesting. Uh, 
I found at least for me, like the actual fears didn't weren't so much of the actual work, the actual incidents and the things that I was fearful of. It was more of the effect it was having on my life than uh, than the actual events that are under the fear. But I also hear a few people. I listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson and I've heard some other people talking about if you want to grow, uh, pick something you're afraid of and and walk through it. Um, yeah. And and some of that gets to be a little bit, you know, I don't know how you do that if you were, you know, if you have fears that were based off of, uh, you know, maybe some maybe therapy could help you with that. If it was based on some traumatic event, uh, I wouldn't begin to prescribe how you would do that. But he went to like simple kind of stuff, like if you're afraid of crowds uh, to start working into being OK, take some of a safe friend and go get into a small crowd and then do that for a while and then start you know, and actually work through them um, just by exposure to the actual thing you're afraid of. Yes. And that's what I do when I work with my clients with cognitive behavior therapy. I use a little bit of cognitive behavior therapy in the book, but I go a little bit deeper. Yeah. How did we find that book? Um, it's on Amazon right now. Amazon for paperback and Kindle. Yeah. And what's it called? It's called fear. Um, and I used the acronym. So it's F period, E period, A period, R period. And then it says face everything and rise afterwards is the subtitle. Mm -hmm. You know, cause I was taught in early recovery, there's two acronyms um, with fear. It's yeah. either forget everything and run or face everything and rise. Right. And I've heard about 15 other ones too. Yes. There's one with a curse word that I like yeah. to use sometimes. Yeah. That don't have, that has a whole different F word in it. And when you yeah. said the two things, you know, there's also something I've heard a million times somehow or another, all these little sayings I've picked up in 12 step recovery seem to find a home in my brain and they stay. Uh, but uh, the, um, you know, that we're either fearing that we're going to lose something or we're afraid we're not going to get something. So, yes, that that's the two main fears that I use in my book. Yeah. 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 It's a, uh, you know, I bet I could sit here and say, you know, and, I, and I've had a, you know, not that it makes it, you know, because this is another thing I love to say is that, you know, it, uh, I'm glad that my recovery is not based on my success with sponsees. <laughs> uh, it's based on that. I try. Yes. Put the effort out, you know, it's in, uh, you know, a guy that kind of, sometimes you get those people and I like to say they're blocking parrying, you know, they're like a sword and a shield and everything I try to offer them they're blocking <laughs> it and swinging and knocking it down and stuff. And, you know, and I really quickly, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't fight those battles. You know, if you don't want this, that's cool, dude. Uh, no yeah. hard feelings, brother. I'm not, I can't make you want this. Yeah. Uh, and I say that, you know, the great thing is, is that my success is not based on your success. Um, yeah, that's true. But I'm, I'm here to help you if you want it. And um, but the fact of the matter is, is that I've had a success that I'm I'm blown away by. And I think I hear that in your words, too, uh, that my success in handing this to other people is, has been phenomenal. Uh, more people listen to it than don't. So I start getting, um, it breeds a confidence and a self-esteem in me handing this program to you that carries over and puts in and plants seeds in other people that if this dude is this confident about this work, uh, you know, then there's gotta be something to it. And, uh, but the, what, what uh, today sitting here thinking, 
ultimately when I work the 12 step with somebody, we are doing a fairly shallow dive in the fears inventory mm-hmm. that's, today. That's I don't go real deep into that. Yes. And that's one of the reasons why I reach out to people whenever things like this happen is because I'm constantly figuring out on how to be a better sponsor. Well, yes, I did. I did a very like surface level fear inventory um, when I first went through it and it still worked. Yep. Yep. It wasn't until year five when I was dealing with emotional sobriety mm-hmm. that I got back with my sponsor and I asked him if he'd we'd work the steps again. And he had me go to his house and he looked at me and he said, I'm not taking you through the steps again. We've been through the steps. Your problem is you're not working a certain step. And we traced it back to step four and we traced it to fears. And at the same time, I had a friend of mine that was 13 years sober. And I remember him saying at year five, he struggled and he did a deep fear inventory. So I reached out to him too. And I, I really dove deep and being a therapist, I seen, um, a lot of correlation with science and therapy and trauma work with a deep mm-hmm. fear inventory. And I put all the pieces together and I talk about that in my book with spirituality, with therapy. And I talk about science, how science is, um, you know, like the neuroscience of the, the mind and the body and how fear affects us. Yeah. Um, and also too, how the freedom of fear um, affects us. And just by correlating all those things and putting them together, like I, I really dove deep with myself. I guess I'm, I, I'm really hard on myself, which is a good, it's a good and bad thing. Right. But I just wanted to be happy. And, you know, you figure with multiple years of sobriety, you're supposed to be happy, joyous and free, but those deep rooted fears were still in me. Yeah. How do I move past that? And it makes me think of uh, some people I've known over the time that, that, you know, cause what happens a lot of times for me is that I, I have had this wonderful spiritual awakening where it is transformed. I'll just like, like, I, I don't know, I think it's in the doctor's opinion, but it says huge rearrangements and displacements. Yeah. Uh, and it's been huge for me, man. I mean, like even to the point that uh, physically people I used to know don't recognize me physically anymore. I have to remind them who I am. And that's <laughs> weird to me that I had to, uh, you know, I got a little longer hair than I used to have, but I don't think I look all that different. And yeah. that's the kind of huge displacements and rearrangements. I think that's the same thing as what he was talking about. And then I see somebody not get that, you know, and I'm wanting to know, you know, why not? Where is what's going on with this dude that he's not getting what I what I have? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and so this, this also could maybe be a new tool or uh, something to, to look into, to see if maybe that won't crack the, the can of worms open, uh, of what, where the block is, you know, sometimes I can diagnose it pretty easily when I talk to them for a minute, cause they're not yes. doing all 12 steps, you know, they're, uh, they're not sponsoring. I've had one of my favorite lines and I joke about it, you know, is this one where people go, I'm just not wired to sponsor. Uh-huh. you're wrong. <laughs> uh, and I understand too, that people, I have some friends that, uh, do, uh, heavy duty doses of service instead of sponsoring. Yes. And they I seem to, they seem to get by with that. And I don't mean by get by, it seems to be working for them, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm not, you know, but I do have a full belief that if you're not sponsoring somebody, you're not working on 12 of these steps. <laughs> That's my opinion. Uh, but, you know, you can usually talk to somebody and see where, you know, what they're not doing if you talk to them for a minute. And sometimes I don't know what they're not doing. 
and they're still not getting free. And, you know, and it probably is linked to some kind of, I'm going to I'm just going to throw this out here. Uh, it, it's probably linked to some kind of childhood trauma. And it very well could be, you know, um, you know, it's, it's like getting something and we're putting it together, you know, whether it's a piece of furniture, it's a grill, uh, maybe it's a, you know, you're putting together um, a child's toy for them and you get the instruction manual. And if you thoroughly follow the instruction manual, you're going to get the, the, the finished product. Yep. But, you know, sometimes we like to take that instruction manual. We like to throw it in the trash. And then when we get done, there's, you know, maybe five screws left over that we're supposed to go somewhere. Yep. And then, you know, after the weight's sitting on the object for a little bit, it breaks because yep. it was missing a screw in a certain area. Yeah. I like to use the, and that's, I like that even maybe a little better. I'm a really mechanical dude, man. I have a wood shop in my backyard. That's what I do for a living today. I uh, have my dream job. Uh, I'll run around and handyman for people. So I go around. It's interesting how that fell in my lap. I go around and fix people's things for them and it makes them happy when I fix their stuff. Even though, <laughs> yes. You know, they pay me to do it, but there's some service aspect underneath of yes. that that uh, I giggle at today because I didn't aim to do that. It just dawned on me one day that I'm helping these people mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and getting paid to do it. So the mechanical side of it works for me on that, putting something together and leaving something out because there's also that end of it that doesn't work in the analogy I always use is that later on down the road, something isn't working right. And it's because it goes linked back to that part you left out or that part of the instruction you didn't follow. I always use the recipe like grandma's pie recipe kind of thing. You know, if you try to start, you know, and feel free to play with the recipe if you want to. But if you want it to turn out just like grandma's pie, you got to exactly follow her recipe. Um, and, you know, if you're going to leave something out or shortcut something or add something that wasn't in it, uh, you're not going to get the same pie. You just are yeah. not. And that's kind of like this, you know, feel free to do that, you know, because I think, you know, we've come a long way with these 12 steps. I think if Bill could be resurrected and could see what some of us are doing with him, mm -hmm. uh, he may be, you know, he, he may have the old timer and now, uh, mentality and say, you're not doing it right. You know, you're not <laughs> following the, the directions. Because uh, I've said this before, too. I'm not sure somebody can actually do an, a, a thorough four step by following the boot instructions in the big book on their yes. own. They, the, somehow or another, and that's one of the another one of the reasons I believe that book was somewhat, if not entirely divinely inspired, is because it requires a mentor to help one go through their work. Yes. And I don't think you could write a book like that on purpose. I don't so, think you could write a book on purpose that gave you enough instructions to provide the hope it helps. But in order to get it all, you need somebody else to explain it to you. So, yes, I, I firmly agree with that. And actually, when I was writing my book, I thought about that because it took Bill three years to write that. And he was very careful with the way he worded it. But when I was in prison and I dove into um, the history of AA and I, I got to learn a lot of the background, uh -huh. I 100 percent firmly believe that that big book is is divinely inspired yeah i do too uh you know in another book that has been uh uh around for a long time and uh definitely not too many people you know you can't always find detractors that divinely inspired is the bible and it somewhat is in the same vein where you kind of you know to some extent you need a mentor to help you understand what it's saying yeah, I'm not a big Bible guy, but I what I say today is, is that uh, <clears throat> I draw from many ancient spiritual teachings. 
Yes, you know, me too. They wouldn't have hung around this long if they weren't if they didn't hold some water, right? Uh, they, they things don't last that have no value, and for things to hang around as long as some of that stuff has the uh, Upanishads and the Bhagavad. I always mess up when I'm saying that. Yeah, me too. Vita. Uh, I'm a yo. I'm a yoga teacher. That's another thing. Uh, my step eleven world uh, and has a has a. You know, ten says continue to take personal inventory. If I would nutshell eleven, I'd say it says continue to grow spiritually. Yes, uh, and that might mean something different from you than it does to me. Again, uh, becoming a yoga teacher fell under that category for me. Uh, I learned about the actual philosophy of living that yoga is. Uh, you know, when I initially thought it was just putting your body in different shapes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've done a few other things that that fall under that category, too, and consider it all my uh, my step 11. And, you know, and, and I, you know, it also can be saying improving my conscious contact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the, the line goes on to say with uh, improve your constant contact with God of your understanding, if I'm thinking right. And uh, and I believe that I can stop short, just say, improve my conscious contact. I'm improving my conscious contact with my fellows, with my dad, with my kids, uh, with the community around me, uh, kind of falls under that same thing. And, and that's kind of stuff that some of the, you can kind of end up with a little bit of a blasphemy thing on from, uh, I'll just use that term again, old timers who are kind of died in the wool and believe that, you know, it means this and it means nothing more. Uh, I've read some of Bill's writings, too, besides the, you know, big books, some of his The Great Bound articles and the Language of the Heart book. And yes, a lot of diving into that. And somewhere along the line, I picked up the idea that Bill never intended us for to stop with this. He intended us to continue to cultivate this little program we got going on and uh, and, you know, squeeze as much juice out of it as as we can find. Yes, I, I firmly agree with that, too. And, um, you know, along my journey, I was raised Catholic and I was raised with a, a punishing God. Mm-hmm. And I converted to Christianity, my first prison bid. And then my last one, um, when I was practicing my last prison sentence, when I was practicing step 11. Man, we go so good for a little bit and then the brakes hit right when I'm wanting to hear what you say. Not that I'm ever not wanting to hear what you say, but my interest peaks up a bunch and then. And maybe it's being recorded. Okay, there you go. Yeah, we were on a roll there for a while. I know that exactly what I was saying, and then I got to thinking, (laughs) if the cloud is recording this, and I'm talking, and you're talking, it's really going to be a jumble. Um, Maybe I should tested that at some point early on in there here and said, hold on, let me call you back in five minutes and let me see what this thing is actually doing. Um, But you said your last bid, your step eleven, started looking like. Yes, I, I started looking into different um, religions, mainly for meditation purposes at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got my hands on a book. And in this book, they talked they talked about every single religion. And I read it chapter by chapter. And I seen every religion was telling the same story. Yep, me too. And it intrigued me. There was some fear there to break free from my Christian roots and and whatnot. But it's not so much that I broke free from them. It's that I became more open-minded and willing to accept my creator and the universe in many different forms. Yep. And I really grew from that. 
you know, yeah. and I talk about that in my book. I talk about that in my book as well. I use some Bible stuff and I say, Hey, I'm not forcing Jesus or Christianity. I'm just using a teaching. It's a yep. teaching. You talk about, a lot alike. Yes. And I talk about um, Buddha and I talk about, you know, the staff of Hermes, the rod of Hermes yep. and what the real meaning is. Um, and the medical profession uses it. It's a really a spiritual meaning. And, um, you know, science is actually proving to me, science is proving spirituality. Um, you know, like the neuroscience and the effects of, of, you know, basically having faith and love and gratitude and the effects it has on the mind and the body, you know, we can heal ourselves. And that's another thing I touch on in the book. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, uh, in my personal adventures, uh, people that reject that stuff do not appear to be as happy to me. Same. I, I agree. Uh, they just don't seem to fall under the category of happy, joyous and free. Now, I don't know if I can say that for sure, but that's my that's that's my perception when I'm talking to them, because usually they're complaining about the state of affairs. You know, they're 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 finding everything that's wrong with everything. And, uh, you know, I could spend, you know, me and you could spend easily spend the same amount of time on this podcast complaining about the world and <laughs> complaining about things and finding things that are, are not right. Uh, but I just choose not to operate like that anymore. Um, it's the, old, the age old thing. I look on the bright side kind of thing. You know, I'm, I'm open. And you said that, you know, I think Bill tells us that in there. I think that's exactly the reason why he started capitalizing all that stuff in we agnostics using all that different terminology is to that was telling us that we need. And he says in no uncertain terms at other places that we have to open our mind. We have to be open minded. We have to let go of our old ideas. Uh, you know, that's a that's a concept that I that I carry home when I'm talking about. And when I'm first starting working with the guys that we this book says well, that I have to be willing to let go of my old ideas. And I'm not saying you got to put them down forever. But for the time while we're doing this, it takes an open mind to allow some of this new stuff to get in. It goes with the uh, if I come to you with a full cup of water and I want more, uh, I, you can't put any more in my cup because it's full. And uh, I have to dump some of that out temporarily in order to receive some more water from you um if you show up with your cup full of water there's no room for me to add anything to you and list lost it again yeah it did for a second it came back in yeah so i will definitely be putting this stuff on the show notes and i could talk to you for a long time um and if by some chance this recording ends up being do we have a way that you can get us? I think I have to believe it's on your end because I'm running about a thousand gigabytes of hardwired up to my modem uh, uh, thing. Uh, you know, it always that kind of goes with this old AA thing, too, where I, I'm never the problem. Uh, I still, <laughs> I, I still uh, struggle with that at times. I, I uh, will take I will take accountability. It probably is on my end. Um, because I came to work to have some quiet space to do this podcast. Uh-huh. And it's raining outside, so I don't know if, if it's the rains maybe messing with the signal. Yeah, I uh, I see that happen uh, occasionally too, where it seems like the vapor content in the atmosphere messes with cell data. Uh, weird, weird, weird. But I'm gonna put this stuff in the show notes, and uh, and I would definitely like to beat. I love talking this stuff, man. I yes, just love too. to beat the con beat around the concepts, you know, and. Uh, there's a bunch of guys on the internet that are doing similar stuff when it comes to uh, consciousness and uh, 
and spirituality and yes. things like that. And they, uh, the word that a couple of those guys are using is dialogos, where you just talk to one another and ideas come out that we would never have gotten had we not talked. Mm. Uh, we, we, we think and we open up uh, neural pathways yes. by conversating about this stuff. And it's so yes. cool. No, I firmly agree. And I touch on that a little bit in the book with consciousness and subconscious um, and the release of uh, dopamine. And, um, you know, when we're operating, when we're connected to one another and we're operating on our consciousness, like you said, we're releasing dopamine. Mm -hmm. And dopamine equals energy. It equals motivation, you know. Yep. Yep. And that's why I like, you know, you said something earlier about after I pissed up getting high, I get high on these podcasts. I feel energized every single time. Uh, I've learned that I have to watch out because there's also a little crash about an hour after one of them. Yes. But so that I usually leave some space for some rest between podcasts and whatever I'm doing next. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause if I get up from this and I go straight into something else, I'll experience that crash while I'm trying to focus on something else. And, uh, it doesn't, you know, obviously uh, that doesn't work well for me. So I always give a little downtime right after the podcast to uh, recollect. No, yes, that's the same. Did I come back yeah. yet? Now okay. you're back. Um, it's funny you say that about, you know, getting that high feeling and then the crash, because I never thought about that. But yesterday I rushed from, um, I dropped my fiance off at the, the airport and I rushed to go speak at a treatment center. And I left there feeling like I was back connected, you know, and it was like that fifth step feeling. And I felt, you know, that high still cut out. It cut out when you said that you left there still feeling that high. Yeah. So I left that treatment center after telling my story and I still felt high and I rushed to my home group to meet my sponsor and some sponsees and we went out to eat. I didn't even think about it, but I was crashing. And I remember saying in my head, maybe I'm crashing from that feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I believe that happens. Uh, I see it in other times in my life too. Same thing happens with me when I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a sponsor. Yes. I get high and then I know, I've, I know that I need to, to rest afterwards and not just go straight into something else. If I, if I can do that, if I can, you know, if that's possible. Well, cool, man. I am so happy that we run into each other. Um, me too. Doing this podcast has allowed me to see that all the goodness that is happening all over this world, all over this country, you know, and if I watch TV and I do things like that, all I get delivered is this negative message. And, um, You'd said something in your in our conversation on Facebook Messenger about light workers. Yes. And, uh, and I keep on running into them and they're actually everywhere. Uh, you know, I know you said you said we need more of them and I agree. Uh, but I'm fascinated at how many I've I know uh, yes. people that are carrying a positive message and uh trying to help these other souls while we make these trips on this big blue marble. So you got any closing thoughts that you want to say? I'll, I will include obviously a ad in here or a links to the, to the book on in the show notes. And I don't hear you right now. I don't, now I hear you. Okay. There you go. You cut out on me that time. <laughs> I said, uh, do you have any closing thoughts and hopefully they will come through clear before we 
in this episode? You know, that's really it. You know, I just, I just hope that, you know, um, if anybody's listening to this podcast, it, it's helpful to them and maybe shines light in an, an area that will help them grow. Yeah. And I thank you for too. the privilege to be on here. Yeah. I'm, uh, thank you. You are very welcome. Uh, it, it, like I said, uh, you're doing me a favor when you come be on this show because, uh, for a number of reasons. So I thank you for doing that. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me. I say three things when I close this podcast. It used to be two and now it's three. Now the first one is if it if it if it's working for you, keep doing it. And if it's not working, stop. <laughs> if you're not having a blast in your recovery, it's your own damn fault. Nobody else is to blame. And I want to thank everybody out there for allowing Justin and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner today. Peace out.